As a medical professional, you're probably consumed by your work. Because of that, you likely miss out on big opportunities to protect and grow the wealth you work so hard for. Luckily, through passive real estate investing, you can place your capital in the hands of trusted syndicators who do all the legwork while you sit back and let your money work for you. Syndicators like Ascent Equity Group. Ascent Equity Group is led by three medical professionals turned full-time real estate investors who have secured a quarter of a billion dollars in assets in just three years. And their latest opportunity, Sunrise and Chandler, is open now. Sunrise and Chandler is an exciting 177-unit value-add multifamily opportunity in the affluent city of Chandler, Arizona. This Class B asset in a Class A location was secured at a significant discount and is already cash flowing out of the gate, with 89% of the units still in need of renovation. Sunrise and Chandler is close to meeting its capital raising goal and will be closing soon. So if you'd like to learn more, visit ascentequitygroup.com forward slash best deal to schedule a call. That's A-S-C-E-N-T equitygroup.com slash best deal. This opportunity is open to accredited investors only. I know that may be a lot of numbers for listeners that aren't as familiar with some of these terms, but the whole point is that there's a lot of moving parts to this. It's important to look at the entirety of the capital stack and the loan debt portion, particularly to move these metrics around to see really at the end of the day who you're dealing with. Best ever listeners, I'm so excited to share today's sponsor with you. It's Eastern Union Funding and Arbor Realty Trust. If you're in the multifamily space, you likely recognize these names, but have you used them? Uh, I'm guessing if you haven't, then you probably know someone who has. I can tell you personally, we have used uh, Mark Belsky. He is a point person at Eastern Union Funding as a partner with us. And he has helped us secure debt uh, for actually a deal we closed on this month. And we've worked with him. Um, in addition, my clients, my program, my consulting program have worked with him to successfully close on deals. Uh, when we were starting out, Ashcroft was starting out, we had somewhat of a track record. But we weren't fully as established with our investor network. I went to him and we secured some equity, $500,000 in equity to fund one of our deals. While he works with more institutional partners, he's brought $200 million in equity over the last 12 months. He was able to help us out there and we built a relationship with him and Eastern Union Funding ever since. So if you need equity for your deal and you have a track record, then he's your point person. His number is 212-897-9875. If you need debt, then he partners up with Arbor on a lot of transactions. So if you're a multifamily borrower who wants agency or bridge debt, then that's the team to work with. Uh, We have worked with their team, both Eastern Union and Arbor, on deals and people who have purchased our deals, purchased deals from us, have used Arbor, as well as my clients in my consulting program, they've used it. So this is a recommendation that comes from firsthand experience. And the last thing I'll say about uh, working with Mark Belsky at Eastern Union is that if you need a loan guarantor, but don't have that track record quite yet, then Mark can look at what you've the deal you've got and assuming it checks out he can make introductions to people he knows as potential loan guarantors for your deal so debt equity and potentially loan guarantors uh, all you need well you need to find a deal obviously 
Um, but besides that, you know, the other main components of the deal they can help you out with. So talk to Mark Belsky. His email is mbelsky at easterneq.com. And his phone number, 212-897-9875. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff. And because today is... Skillset Sunday, we got a special skill for you, and we're talking to you, passive investors, investors who want to passively invest in deals. And you know what? We're also talking to sponsors, deal sponsors, so general partners. And I'll tell you how we're talking to both of you. For passive investors, guess what? We have a skill for you. And when I say we, I mean Hunter Thompson, our guest. I don't have the skill that he's going to talk about in the degree that he's discussing it because he's the one who has seven parts of due diligence that he recommends passive investors go through when they're assessing an opportunity. And active investors, deal sponsors, listen up, my friends, because these are things that you should think about when you're putting together deals and prior to offering the deals to your investors because they're things you'll be evaluated against. So how you doing, Hunter Thompson? Nice to have you back on the show. Hey, thanks again, Joe. Really appreciate you having me on. A little bit about Hunter. You probably recognize his name. That's because you're a loyal best ever listener, episode 1,220. He was on the show and he gave his best ever advice. So you can listen to that episode 1,220. He's a founder of Cashflow Connections, which is a real estate syndication company. He has helped investors allocate capital to over 100 properties with a combined asset value of 350 million buckaroos. He's the host of Cashflow Connections podcast, and he's based in LA, California. So with that being said, Hunter, you want to give a quick refresher about your background, and then we'll dive right into the seven parts of due diligence. Sure. So I think a lot of people listening to this really had an interesting moment when 2008 happened. I think that we saw the opportunity that was going to be there for people that didn't lose their shirts, at least. That was definitely a light bulb turning on moment. That's kind of how it was for me. Generally speaking, I like to be counter-cyclical. So when everyone was really concerned about real estate, I'd jump in. And I've been really fortunate in the timing of the market, obviously, but also in the people that I've met. So when I built relationships with some of those people in the heart of the real estate collapse, it ended up being that a lot of them ended up being some of the most influential people in the real estate sector, particularly in the state of California. So I've been able to develop a network and develop a company ever since starting it out as kind of a small family office, going from friends and family to now we have about 250 investors and spread across many, many properties, like you mentioned. So happy to talk about this today. I think the timing of this conversation is really important. You mentioned the sponsors listening up as well. I think in this conversation, there may be some sponsors that start to cringe when we talk about some of the details of passive investment due diligence, but there's been such a significant paradigm shift that's taken place in the real estate investment sector. So many people have access to deals and the amazing run-up we've had in the last 10 years People have been able to invest passively in, in real estate, particularly since the Jobs Act. They've going to receive incredible results, generally speaking, because of how favorable the market's been. So I think it's really important right now for passive investors to take an honest look in the mirror, look at their processes, how they're making decisions on these investments so that they can yield similar returns over the next 10 years. Seven parts of due diligence process. What's number one? The first one, and really this is the entire thing. It's all really about this, which is the sponsor. If you're investing in a passive deal 
and you're defending for someone else's expertise, it needs to be the entire due diligence process is really focused on them. So when we talk about sponsored due diligence, some of the things that I look for, obviously you want to look at the track record, you want to look at references, et cetera. But in terms of actually validating some of the claims they're making, some of the things I like to do is call their third-party service providers and verify that things match up with them. So I like to talk to the lenders, their CPAs, their attorneys, not only their investors, some of those are obviously going to be biased because they're the ones that send you those references anyway. But let's say if they say that they have a contractor that's completed $100 million with them of assets, we can call that contractor and just verify that that claim actually matches up. And if you're going through and verifying different things, you're going to have some yellow flags that pop up if they're making things up and if they're not being honest. So that's really one of the things that I think is really a good idea is just contact the lenders, the loan companies in particular, or something else you can do is you can pull title on properties that they claim to own because anyone can just point to a property and say, oh, we own that massive office center over there. Well, if you can actually pull the title, you can follow the entity trail so that you can actually understand if that entity is the entity you expected it to be, if the property is in good standing, if there's a lien against the property, et cetera. And I think those two steps right there are going to really help you start to validate some of the claims they're making. But at the end of the day, again, it's a gut check. So when I'm looking at a sponsor, especially up front prior to me funding, I want to talk about how frequently are they responding to emails and how frequently are they answering their phone, et cetera. Because if they're not doing a 10 out of 10 job now, they're surely not going to do it later once you have funded. Now, keep in mind, most real estate investments are long-term seven to 10 year hold. So the real question is, do you want to deal with this person for the next seven to 10 years? And I think that those steps right there, that's a good starting process for sure. How does the investor pull the title on a property? Good question. So there's a couple of service providers that can provide this. Soldify.com, S-O-L-D-I-F-I.com, Chicago Title Company, and RealQuest. Those will all be able to do that. And it's just a matter of who you like more, the prices that you're trying to accomplish, et cetera. How much does it cost on average? You can do it for free if you have a good relationship with them, but I've seen anywhere from $50 to $150 per title. If you have a relationship with the title representative, they'll do it for free. And when you get the lender's contact information, what information will the lender provide you with if you are secretly looking into if they're telling the truth about mm. a loan? Yeah, that's a good question. So I personally don't typically go that route. I usually let everyone know that I'm going to contact who I'm going to contact, just letting them know prior to doing that, just so that we can get on the same page. This also actually provides a insight because you basically say, look, if they're going to say anything weird, you can just tell me now. <laughs> and that's actually something that saved me in the past. Same with running background checks, which is something you can do on TLO.com. They provide that as well. Prior to running a background check, I say, is anything weird going to come up on this? Because number one, background checks don't catch everything sometimes. And number two, they need an opportunity to explain if something weird happened in their past or they have some yellow flags that may come up. So usually the lenders won't give you specific information unless the sponsor is obviously allowing you to do so. But that's the way that I handle that situation. Number two, the onsite property manager. And I think this is important. And this is something that Jeremy Roll says a lot. He's a mentor of mine. I know that he's been on your program as well, which is that you can invest in a 100% occupied property in Beverly Hills that 
is in the most prime real estate in America, basically. But if the property manager commits fraud, everyone's losing money. So I want to look at the property manager, their relationship with the sponsor, how frequently they've worked with them before. Do they have other properties in the market? Are they knowledgeable about the specifics of this particular asset? And then I want to look at things like what software do they use? What do the communications look like between the on-site manager and the sponsor? Just how sophisticated are they and some of those data points? And again, there's a lot of different software companies out there so that you'll get a lot of different answers, but you start asking questions like this, you'll start to see the range of what's going on kind of behind the scenes. What's a good answer and what's a bad answer? Well, Yardi is probably the industry standard. Each asset class, self-storage has its own one that a lot of people use, U-Haul's self-storage software, which is web self-storage. Bad answer is that they can scan a copy of the handwritten notes that they've provided. That's the kind of person that we want to buy a property from, not the kind of person that we want to have manage our property. Mm -hmm. So that'll kind of give you an idea. Yep. Okay. Number three is the loan. And I think this is really, really critical. Probably for most passive investors, they aren't thinking about this as critically as they should. I would say that 99% of all the horror stories in the US have something to do with debt financing. Loans coming due at the wrong time. You can have inability to refinance, interest rates changing, stuff like that. Almost all of the stories that have to do with loss of principal have to do with the financing portion. And keep in mind, the financing is the majority of the purchase. So this makes sense. So there's a couple of different metrics that I want to look at. And it's important to look at the entirety of them to understand kind of who you're dealing with. So obviously loan to value is important, but what is that loan to value based on? Is that an appraisal? And if that appraisal is the way that the loan to value is being established, is that appraisal based on after repaired value? So if there's a significant capital expenditure, if they're significantly rehabbing the property, that rehab needs to be completed before that loan to value is accurate. So you want to look at loan to value Also, you want to look at loan to purchase price, which will give you a more transparent understanding of the true worst case scenario if there was going to be a problem, especially early on. You also want to look at the debt service coverage ratio. So sort of the industry standard is usually somewhere close to 1.25. In certain industries, let's say mobile home parks in particular, you can see much higher debt service coverage ratios as you add value by raising rents. You can do so relatively quickly because that asset classes on monthly leases. And then you also want to look at the interest only period. And this is something that you really have to read between the lines and understand this in order to assess the difference between two different properties. So the interest only period is obviously the time at which the loan is not paying down itself and it's just paying the interest only. And then once that interest only period is over, the payments increase. So we usually see a range of one to two years, sometimes five. But keep in mind, the longer the interest-only period, the more aggressive, the less time which you have to pay down your debt before the refinance happens. The really important reason that I mention this, though, is that if you're looking at two properties that are relatively comparable, but one has a one-year interest-only period and the other has a five-year interest-only period, you're going to think that the one with the five-year interest-only period is much more advantageous, but it's because there's a different risk component. And I used to kind of think that if you were doing five years interest-only, that the sponsor was aggressive because that's kind of a long time. But I especially think right now, 
it's interesting to take a look at properties where the loan to value is very, very low, let's say 55% or so, then you get to have a five-year interest-only period. And the fact that you're taking such a low loan to value means that you basically would be in the same position if you only had a one-year interest-only period with a more normal loan to value. And I know that may be a lot of numbers for listeners that aren't as familiar with some of these terms, but the whole point is that there's a lot of moving parts to this. It's important to look at the entirety of the capital stack and the loan debt portion, particularly to move these metrics around to see really at the end of the day who you're dealing with, if that makes sense. You mentioned the loan to purchase price. What range do you look for there? Typically, let's say 80% or so, I think that makes sense. We want to invest in properties which are undervalued or we are able to get a good deal. So typical commercial real estate assets, somewhere between 65 and 70% loan to value. So it would make sense that if you're able to get a discount, loan to purchase price would be in that 85% range. And I'd feel comfortable with that depending on the overall big picture thesis of the investment. Number four. This is about the property performance and the pro forma. So looking at the pro forma generally, if you start to look at the pro forma and ask questions about the pro forma, you're going to be one of those few investors that actually does this. One of the things that I think is a really good starting point is to either look at or request the trailing three and trailing 12 month financials for the property and compare those previous financials to the year one, year two, year three projections. And the really thing you want to look at is what are the major differences between the trailing 12 month financials and the first year? And then any big differences that come up, you can ask the sponsor to kind of validate that. So the biggest one, and probably the first thing that I usually look at, is the operating expense ratio. If something's off there, you can then find out what it is. But if you have a property that is operating in a 55% operating expense ratio, meaning that 55% of the income is going towards operating expenses, then in year one, that jumps from 55 to 45. You really want to figure out what is changing that's validating that. It's not a red flag, but it is something worth asking about. So when you go through and ask those types of questions, you're going to get some really interesting answers and it's going to paint a much more clear picture as far as how detail-oriented the sponsor is being in that underwriting and how he validates that change in operating expenses. Something else I think is important is cap rate expansion or compression. So I think right now, a conservative underwriting standard for the cap rate. So let's say you buy a property at a six cap and you're holding it for 10 years. I think that 10 basis points per year is a pretty conservative route to go. So that would mean buying a property at a six cap, estimating to sell it at a seven cap. Now it's not necessary to underwrite it like that, but I think that it's a good sign for me if I see that. One of the things I caution people about is sometimes sponsors will say that they're underwriting to a 10 basis points per year expansion but they're saying that they just got a screaming deal on the property. So they may be buying at a 6.5 cap and saying that it should be a six cap and therefore they're buying at a 6.5 and it's turning into a seven by year 10. But that would be closer to let's say five basis points per year if you're following the math on that. And again, I know it's a little bit confusing, but (laughs) this is the kind of stuff that actually makes a huge difference because the multiple of your income that you're trading at at the end can make a huge impact on the overall return profile of the deal. And if that was a whole lot to take in, a simple question you can ask them is, 
what's your going in cap rate, what's your projected exit cap rate, and how many years are we planning on holding it? And then you can just determine if they are adding 10 basis points per year for the hold period. Or sometimes if they're just keeping the cap rate flat or gasp if they're saying the cap rates will be lower when the exit. I mean, that's a huge red flag. Yeah, I appreciate you jumping in there because that's actually a much easier way of saying what I was just explaining. But really the question is, is there a cap rate expansion? Is there a cap rate compression? What's the rate at which that takes place? And justifications for each. Number five. This is really the market itself. The main thing I want to look at is diversity of employment. And again, this is just my particular perspective, but I like to be in markets, let's say our 35 to 40 minute drive away from half million population in the major metro. And if you do that, generally, you're going to have a good mix of medical, education, government, tech, and hospitality. I would say that tech in particular, there's markets all over the place. Austin, which is obviously a great market. Denver, which is obviously a great market. They're getting a ton of really high paying jobs, but a lot of the tech companies are funded by VC firms, that money may or may not be there in terms of the next five or 10 years. It's a cyclical business, but nothing is more cyclical than hospitality. You look at what happened to Vegas during the last correction, it's the first thing to go. So you don't want to be in a market which is overexposed to hospitality. You may be hesitant to be in a market that's overexposed to high-end tech just because it's uncertain. A lot of these companies aren't profitable, et cetera. I personally don't like to be overexposed to government. I don't like it if there's basically one tenant. I'm looking for true diversification. So that population factor is a big piece of this, but then you do have to look at the economics of the market itself. One of the vehicles I use for that is Esri.com. They have a business analyst, pretty inexpensive for what the value is. Yeah, Esri.com business analyst. That's a good resource for anyone that's listening. When you say overexposed to hospitality and government, what percent or how do you quantify that when you're looking at it? That's a good question. I don't have a good number for that because I try to stay really far away from that. But there's some markets where, let's say, right next to an airbase where there's not really a lot of population except for the airbase, that would be a red flag for me. But I'm looking for a good mix. And the markets that we look at, the mix is so significant that we're avoiding getting to that level of detail. That's an important thing for us as deal sponsors, as are these other things, but this one just I want to mention that we look at if there's a market and a submarket that's more than 20% of any one industry, then we're going to dig deep and figure out what industry that is and if we're fans of that industry or not. That's good to know. Number six. This is the property itself. And... Again, this is just my perspective. I have a very niche perspective on investing as a whole, but some of the things I like to look for, again, diversification of the tenant base. So with self-storage, I like to look for 400 units or more. That's usually 50,000 square feet. With multifamily, I think a lot of investors look for 100 units or more. Some people like 200 units. Really, the whole point is if 10 tenants move out, are you going to have a problem with cash flow? If 10 tenants move out of a self-storage facility with 400 units, no one's going to know, including the investors. With something like office or retail, I like to see 10 or 13 tenants. That's one of the challenges for me with office. There's not a lot of buildings that have 13 plus office tenants around. The key is that the businesses can be very cyclical. 
businesses go away. It's a company. They don't care. There's no emotional connection to the place. You can have challenges like that. With senior living, similarly, I like to see 100 beds. Some of the other metrics, the daily travel vehicles is an important metric. I personally at least get a little bit uncomfortable if it's less than 20,000 daily travel vehicles per day. But it's really important to know if there's visibility from those daily travel vehicles. Can 20,000 people actually see your property? Or are you tucked away under an underpass where there's 80,000 right above you, but you can't really see it? I'm making a point, but I think that's actually kind of important. And then also kind of the physical occupancy, and that's going to help you in the risk profile overall, like under 60% is usually outside of our risk profile and mobile home parks are unique because you can buy them cash flowing at 60%, obviously 80% usually lowers risk, but you're able to add some value 90% occupied, usually a stabilized asset. You may be able to raise rents, et cetera. But if you're relying on cap rates, I think it's challenging at this stage of the cycle. But I think those are some good property due diligence. And then you go through the things, the big ones that can really cause problems are things like roofs, electrical, plumbing, elevators are very expensive. We had to fix one once in a property a couple of years ago. So those are some of the things that I look at when it comes to the property itself. And number seven. Number seven is probably going to surprise some people but it's the legal documentation. And kind of at the beginning, I mentioned that the sponsor themselves are really what this entire thing is about. Every single thing you're looking at when you're asking questions to the sponsor, you're really trying to understand who they are as a person and how they operate as a company. And the reason for this is that if you're a passive investor and you're investing $50,000 or $100,000, you very well could chase $100,000 by spending $100,000 in court if something goes sideways. So the legal documents are the least important. They're still incredibly important. They're on the list. But when it comes to the order of importance, that's why. But when you are looking at the legal documents, the first thing I'm looking at is how much money are they raising and is the money appropriate to be raising with or without a PPM? So most attorneys, this is a gray area thing, but I'd say that if you're raising more than a million dollars, if you have more than 10 investors, that you should be using a PPM, just my opinion not legal advice, but that's something I want to look at. And then within the PPM, what is the quality of work? Is it a legal firm that I recognize or that someone in my network has worked with in the past? But also, does the legal documentation actually match up with my going in perspective of the deal? Does it match up with the executive summary? Is it fair to investors? Do they have voting rights? If so, under what circumstances do they get to vote? One thing that I think is a complete non-starter for at least the way that my company set up is we do not have mandatory capital calls under any circumstance. So we cannot invest in deals that have that stipulation or provision in there. But those are the things you want to look at. Do they require additional capital calls? If there isn't a requirement for additional capital call, what are the terms look like if you violate that requirement? So those are the kind of things that you really start to get an understanding of. Are they trying to paint a fair picture. Are they trying to stack the deck in the sponsor side or are they trying to make things fair? Does it look like a contract or an agreement or does it look like a complete, do never invest in this deal. Okay. Sign your bottom of your lane. Here's the wire instructions. <laughs> so those are kind of things that I look for when it comes to legal documentation. How can the best ever listeners learn more about what you got going on and get in touch with you? I'm the founder of Cashflow Connections. You can go to cashflowconnections.com. I also am the host of a podcast, which you mentioned, which was the Cashflow Connections Real Estate Podcast. And I created a mentorship program 
kind of to talk about some of this stuff. I think it's really important to focus on this stuff right now. That's just the CFC mentorship program. .com. And Joe, I want to tell you, we just covered so much. This is why your show is so awesome. You have a 30-minute program in which people are getting unbelievable content. So again, it's an honor to come on and I really appreciate it. Hey, I'm glad that you came prepared and gave us a lot of really good information. And who cares if I'm glad or not? I'm sure the best ever listeners are very glad and grateful too. So thank you for being on the show. Seven parts of due diligence as a passive investor one sponsor to the property manager and the communication and correspondence and technology that they use with the asset manager. Three is the loan. He gave us some things to look for at the loan. Four, the property pro forma. Five, the market. Six, the diversification of the tenant base. And seven, the legal documentation. So thank you for being on the show again. Hope you have a best ever weekend and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks again. Do you need debt for your deal, equity for your deal, or maybe a loan guarantor to help you get qualified for the financing? Talk to Mark Belsky. His number is 212-897-9875. That's 212-897-9875. His email is mbelsky at Eastern. EQ.com. Have you heard about the latest podcast for entrepreneurs called Tough Decisions? Listen to Dan and Danae Hanford as they interview successful people from around the world about tough decisions as entrepreneurs. Visit toughdecisions.net and be sure to subscribe to their free weekly entrepreneurial email. That's toughdecisions.net.